everybody, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Happy Labor Day and solidarity to all those listening who work for a living. Let me know what it's like. It doesn't sound pleasant. With me, as always, is the hardest working man I know, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Great, Mark. I actually, we actually get the day off today. It's, you know, rare and weird, but we do. Do you know how to take time off, Walker? I, I, Are you one of those people who starts getting twitchy when you have nothing to do? I do. I semi-retired, and it was all of two weeks. Mark. <laughs> and I was back at it. This is not a burden with which I am familiar. Anyway, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Race to the Raft. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to the table Marshmallow Test by Reiner Knizia, published by Game Right. This is a, a very cool trick-taking game where the moment you win four tricks, you're out of that round, and you score as many points as the other players have won tricks. Well, it's variable by number of players, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we were going to play it later, but we just couldn't wait. Sigh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> so yes, the number of tricks I that you win to go out... Control. Will vary on on player number, so you really you really want to make that sweet spot where you want to go out second last, and you want that last person to win. You know, be on the verge of winning. Yes. So that way you get all of the tricks and all of the points, and that last person gets nothing. So it feels we we've played it twice now. It feels very different with four than it does with three. With three, it becomes very high stakes, and it's an excruciating game of chicken. Because go the difference between going out first and second is considerable, and the difference between going out second and third is huge. <laughs> and, and there's an interesting strategy of of winning a bunch of tricks early, so then you can be ready to go out when you want. But then people, we've we it happened. We streamed it this Saturday, so if you want to see it in action, check out the live stream on YouTube, and you can see where the person in the lead we just fed him four tricks in a row right off the hop, and he was out of the round with no points because none of us had won any tricks. Actually, I think if you go back you'll see someone had won one trick. Nice. So we got one point. And how many uh, players was that point? Four players. Four players? Yeah. Right. Great game. If it, you're into trick-taking at all, I would suggest this highly. Yeah, we're, we're in a bit of a boom time for clever trick-taking games. Marshmallow Test is a reprinting of a much earlier Reiner Knizia trick-taking game, but he has a number of clever trick-taking games. Marshmallow Test is is really quite clever. I, I really took, took to it with three. I think it suited my play style. Because with three players, conservatism is very much valued. Most people who busted or got very poor scores in the, the rounds that we were playing with three did so because they they didn't know when to get out when the getting was good. They're like, oh, let someone else win some more. No, they, no, they, do they, it. They got greedy, Mark. They got greedy. Exactly. Take your points and run. I've always been very good at that. So that is Marshmallow Test by Reiner Knizia. The edition published by GameRight in 2020. On the topic of Reiner Knizia and reprints, played another game of Amun Ray 20th Anniversary Edition. This is by Alley Cat Games, republished in 2023, a reprint of the uh, 20 year old game Amun Ray. And this is a great return to form for a sort of, you know, classic Euro mold, because I remember when Amun Ray was first making the rounds, it was regarded as. One of the very heaviest Knizia designs, it still is. It was regarded as a very heavy Euro design, which it very much is not anymore. <laughs> the market has moved on and shifted considerably. And in point of fact, I was concerned because 
I I had in my mindset, oh well, this is this, but this is a this is a heavy euro. Is this gonna be? no no problem whatsoever? It was it was a, a mixed crowd of some devoted hobbyist gamers, less devoted hobbyist gamers, and one gamer who sometimes have, has difficulty with uh, some levels of rules. And I was very concerned about how it was gonna go, but there were zero problems for anybody. I was gonna say Almond Ray is the game you have to play that allows you to open up a, a Vidal sort of box just to get started. <laughs> well put. And despite the fact that it is super dated feeling by virtue of the fact that it is auctions followed by a different kind of auctions, which is a very characteristic design philosophy, it is winning new converts with its new published version, and I very much appreciate it. I still haven't tried any of the variants in the box. The only one that I'm especially curious about are the variants that can allow you to play with three players and with a denser map. Uh, basically you end up bidding for two provinces every round and you keep one of them as a province and the other one you just take as a sort of Benny that got filled in by a random card. And I, I don't know if that will make the game feel good with three players. Historically, Amun Ray is strictly speaking a four or five player experience. And again, some people would only say five. So it's in the same El Grande category, basically. And I've been having a great time with Amun Ray. Uh, the, the differences between this edition and the other one, aside from the variants that I mentioned, is I really feel like the scheme cards have been tightened up and rebalanced and they feel less arbitrary and they feel like less determinant of a swingy possible victory. And I very, very much approve. And on top of that, it looks very, very nice. So Amun Ray, the 20th century edition, highly recommended. Reiner Kinsia Alley Cat Games. Mark, you and I got to play a review copy of Everything Ever, and it's pretty much Tapple the card game. Even though there are cards in Tapple, this game doesn't have any sort of electronical component to it. And this is yet another game we played on the stream, and we actually brought Tapple out as a timer, like we talked about before. Oh, cool. I thought it worked great. They thought maybe the timer was a bit short for Tapple for what they're doing, but I think it's the same the same thing, so I don't see why they would think it was short. Because you don't even have to think of a letter. You can pick anything. So what, yeah. what they are is like an open category, like name a friend's character, name a uh, rock band, name... A detective. A detective, a doctor. Type of pie. A type of pie. Just so there are two cards out. I guess maybe because in Tapple it's one, in Everything Ever it's two. Some people just Sometimes don't like time more. pressure as well. It's also true. And it's not only the time pressure, it's like you hear the ticking. I love everything <laughs> about it. It's true. Anyway, they didn't like it. I loved it. So in everything ever, you're flipping up two cards. And like we said, there's these broad categories. You have to give an example of both. And it goes on to the next player. You have a hand of three cards at the beginning where you can cover up one of those cards and change the subject to something else and then name that. And if you ever can't name something, then you take that pile of however you know many cards it is. The, the, there were a couple things that I liked about everything ever and a couple things I very much didn't like. The thing, the part that I liked was, as you said, you can change the categories so you can have things hidden in your pocket. And on top of that, if you can name a single thing that matches all the available categories, then you get a bonus without going into too much detail. So for, for example, if the two cards that are faced up on the table are type of pie and detective, well, you're probably not going to be able to unite the two. But on the other hand, if you have in your hand a type of fruit, well, you can play that on top of the detective pile, and then any number of fruits can also be a, a, a type of pie, and then you're good. You know the, the bizarre example we got? Because I said, okay, here's an example. I flipped over two cards. It was something with wings. Yes. The other thing was something that flies. <laughs> and I was just like, well, well. <laughs> at that point, it's a gimme. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, if we leave those two cards out too long, we might get four cards out at once. Then we'll be in lots of trouble. (laughs) 
So that part I thought was was neat. I liked that part. The part about everything ever that I don't like are twofold. Number one, the sort of loosey-goosey nature of the time pressure. I'm not saying it needs a timer. It's just nobody wants to be that person at the the table. like, you've taken too long. Here you go. Take a penalty. Like, that's that's not fun. Saying, I think what you've said doesn't match the category, that feels more legit. But, you know... You violated some sort of timing. Uh. Yeah, but they made it kind of light with that card. There's a penalty card, so everyone has a card in front of them. You can, like, flip it up and say you've been warned, and then you flip it again, and they get the actual penalty. Right. So maybe it's a little lighter. Maybe it's they <sighs> still bad feels. I just don't. It, it, for, for me personally, I don't think in everything ever, I was inclined. A number of times I felt people were taking too long or longer than I thought were right, or I felt I was taking too long. But I didn't feel as comfortable inflicting the penalty for time lapse because it's less definitive as opposed to, well, I can just make an argument that A doesn't belong under category X. Anyway, the other part that I did not appreciate about everything ever and which where it's in direct competition with Tapple is the memory element. I And again, some people, it's kind of like hidden trackable information, right? Memory is not a thing that board games should track. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I did not enjoy having to remember what everyone said of, over a given category. And so that pressure is utterly absent in Tapple because the key has been depressed. You can't say Batman again because the B has been taken. It's gone. And so that part was was less to my preference. This is actually by Nathan Thornton. He of Green Team Wins. And I have to say that this is enjoyable, but it's no Green Team Wins. And it's no Tapple. I have to say that between everything ever and Tapple, I would take Tapple 10 times out of 10. True, but there are other reasons why you would take it. Like I said, it takes no power. If you want to take it to like a bar or a restaurant, you don't want like Tapple sure. banging and clicking and making noises what, what, all over. I, I, I don't. What are you saying? I'm saying that would bother other people at other tables, Mark. And we don't do that. I would tell them that they should stop drinking so loud. They're disrupting my Tapple. <laughs> <laughs> you probably would. I would. Um. But so in some circumstances, I think that is a a, a decent, a, a, a good alternative. Fair enough. And that was Everything Ever, designed by Nathan Thornton and published by Floodgate Games. On the topic of strange memory elements, we also get to play Sushi Boat. Sushi Boat is by Dario Massarenti and Francesco Testini, published by Japanime Games. Sort of an Italo-Japanese collaboration here. And the... the okay. Uh, let, let's start with why you got it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is a Kickstarter that you there was a There was a Kickstarter, and it showed this uh, large boat, an actual boat-shaped piece of wood, and you actually took plastic dishes that depicted sushi, and it, and it sort of portrayed it as a conveyor belt system. You would slide the sushi dishes along a conveyor belt. I have great memories of this type of thing. I knew that the game wouldn't be very fantastic, but just this moving mechanism of sliding these dishes along a conveyor belt. I knew it was some sort of going to be some sort of set collection type thing. I said, oh, it's going to be good for a go. And it wasn't like overly expensive. So it, and I don't think it was overly bad. We've played worse games, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is difficult to convey how successful the physical gimmick is because it is extraordinarily successful. The kind of plastic they used on the dishes themselves and the kind of wood they used on the boat itself are sufficiently engineered that the conveyor works real well, despite the fact that it jogs at like a 45 degree angle near the end. And it's pretty seamless. It's effortless to shove one in and the other gets shoved out the end. Anybody who's struggled with the game Niagara, for example, the old days of Wonder Game, where it kind of almost but really didn't work at all, 
This is no Niagara. It's it Sushi Boat is quite impressive as a physical gimmick. The part that I found surprisingly obnoxious was precisely the memory element. Two there are two memory elements in Sushi Boat. One of them was fine, and that is every once in a while you're expected to remember slash guess what color dishes are hidden at the juncture. You can see the entrance and most of the dishes at the entrance, most of the dishes at the end, but there are like two plates that are hidden at the end by another piece of wood that says sushi boat. I don't know why they made it this way, but I guess it's just so you can guess. All right, whatever, that's fine. But then there's the fact that the scoring is very determined by set collection, among other things, and you have to remember which ones you've collected. It's like, okay, do I have two Mackie rolls or, or one? And the difference between getting it right and getting it wrong might end up being determinative. There, there are cards that you can buy that will allow you to look through your stack so you can know what you have. So that's it's not terrible. But, you know, that is... Right, and then you still have to remember after looking through them. That is true. Because <laughs> you have the stack of dishes. You're not allowed to look through them. So there's two different types of sets you're trying to collect because all the dishes are colored, plus they all have different sushi on them. So at the end, you're doing full sets of sushi plus... Uh, uh, at the very end, it's the stack. You want all the colors to be the same, and you get points based on the colors that you have the same. Walker, uh, I'll, even though we don't talk about Magic the Gathering, some of our listeners are recovering Magic the Gathering players. Anytime you say the stack, you have to issue a content warning. Sorry. The top of the stack. We, we <laughs> Yikes! We, I we, think someone just fainted. We, we, we apologize very sincerely. First for... in, first out, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> 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 PSD triggers. <laughs> Absolutely. It was fine. I mean, most most of these games that are about food tended to be feather light, and Sushi Boat was relatively unob- unobnoxious, except for those strange memory elements. If I had miscalculated on the set collection and I tripled up on Unagi when I only needed two or something... I, I might get a little frustrated. It's it's just odd. It's a strange limitation. I don't know why they did it that way. I guess it's because there's not really much game involved. But it's okay. Like, you, get, you go and you take sushi and you activate these little cartoon characters that are nominally associated with a sushi restaurant. And adorable. But yeah, they're pretty cute. It's it, it's all right. The physical gimmick, though, is, is nice to interact with. <laughs> I'll say that much. It has table presence. It does have table presence. And that is Sushi Boat by Japanime Games. We also get to play Fit for Print. That was the main game we played on the stream. This is designed by Peter McPherson and put out by Flatout Games. And we're designing newspaper layouts. Mark, they're going to want an extensive comparison with Galaxy Trucker here. So I hope you're ready. So (laughs) in Fit to Print, you're doing four-minute rounds. And everyone's doing, I don't want to say different things, but everyone's sort of using that time differently because you're choosing tiles from the center of the board to place on your table. And I was doing it wrong. I was just sort of flipping them over. Apparently you have to take them all the way back and then, and then put them down. You can't just hover your hand over the pile. Well, that's assumed by civilized players. I'm just just saying as a long time galaxy trucker player, I would never be so savage just to hover over the pile of tiles, breathing through my mouth and it would not, Oh, the tar. No, you take it back in front of you, and then you flip it over yes, and look at it, I was like a decent individual. It was the last round, and I just wanted... Anyway, long story <laughs> Long story short, uh, so you are you have three different sizes of paper. You have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and so they were going to require a different number of tiles, and they're all different shapes, and there's all sorts of different rules 
uh, to place them on your newspaper in different ways you can score. I'm not going to go into the full rule summary. Although they're, they're pretty simple as far as placement yeah. goes. You know, the, again, an obvious comparison is Galaxy Trucker because it's a real-time tile-laying game. The, the, the placement restrictions are very, very simple in, compar- in yeah. comparison to Galaxy No two Trucker. colors beside each other, new, no pictures beside each other, no ads beside each other. Yeah, stuff just like no that. two of the same type, basically. And then That's there's good it. news and bad news, and you want uh, a even number of those. So for the four minutes, you're both choosing your tiles and then you say, you know, my layout phase is done. And then you start placing them on your actual newspaper and trying to get them all to fit. I thought that was the layout phase. uh, No, there's layout means I'm going into layout and then print means you're done. Got it. You're done the paper and you go in. So yeah. So you have the four minutes to do both. And then you grab a token, which will allow you to get your centerpiece first next round. That's pretty well all there for. And you do three rounds of this, and it has an interesting hook where in those three rounds, you're putting out ad copy, and you're not getting any points, but you're getting money. And unfortunately for the person who's made the least amount of money, their newspaper goes broke, and they cannot win. It is a divisive scoring element, to be sure. I think it's great. I I agree. It adds a lovely bit of tension, and you never really know how much money you want uh, want to earn. I think they've actually balanced the values very, very well in that heading into the last round with an advantage, that gives you some breathing room, but it doesn't mean you can take it for granted. So I I think it's well done in that respect. The scoring is very simple, but despite that, there's enough meat to the kind of trade-offs involved to the type of tiles you want to take you know, happiness versus unhappiness, photos versus actual journalism, ad copy based on how much money you think you've generated. It isn't It isn't like you were talking about uh, memory, right? It is very much memory because you want to make sure you don't take a bunch of pink or a bunch of green because you're not going to be able to put them all next to each other. So you're remembering what colors you took. You're remembering uh, how many good articles and bad articles you're taking. And you're remembering, you know, how much ad you need to take and sizes and all this stuff. So you're trying to remember all of this. In order to fit this all on your paper. That's fascinating. I never regarded that as a memory element. As far as the colors went, I was operating on a sort of heuristic kind of, well, I think I've got too many pink. I'll leave this leave this aside. Uh, not, not any kind of, well, you know, what's the balance of my colors? As far as the happiness versus unhappiness, that I very much did keep track of. It's like, okay, I already got six happiness on my paper and only two unhappiness. Okay, I only need unhappy stories from now on. And in Fit to Print, it was fascinating to see how the different papers were laid out because despite the fact that it's a simple grid and everything is just a a rectangle there are no polyominoes or anything like that it was it 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 shook out more or less as you would expect i I would look over at your paper and it was densely packed and almost every square was used and you had barely any wasted space i would look over at huey's paper and it looked more or less the same and then i would look at my paper and it looked like making USA Today a Pulitzer Prize-worthy endeavor in that there were vast amounts of wasted space, just a big splashy picture in the middle, three public interest stories, and we called it a day. Despite that, the scoring conditions were substantive enough that I never felt like I was being completely dominated. And so there's kind of, based on my one play of Fit to Print, there seems to be a balance between that spatial puzzle element, for which I was woefully unprepared and ill-equipped, and the balancing of various journalistic requirements, I, I, I shudder to say. And I was pleasantly impressed by that factor. And so we're wait, still waiting for the, the Galaxy Trucker comparison. They're very different. I mean, they're similar in that they're real-time tile-laying games. 
But for one thing, Galaxy Trucker is uh, showing its age because it does not have anthropomorphic animals. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not published in the past three years. And it's much rules heavier uh, yeah. I, like, I and longer. Anything I say, it's going to be, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm harping on, on Galaxy Trucker. But yes, fit to print would be very much easier to teach and, and is much shorter for sure. Yeah. When I'm playing Galaxy Trucker, I am making a ship to spec for a variety of specific challenges, whereas in fit to print, I'm just maximizing points, which is fine. It's three four-minute rounds. It's a very, very quick game. And so it doesn't need to be encumbered by all those things. As I said, I was surprised by the amount of play style variety it allowed by virtue of its scoring conditions. So I, I would be interested in trying it again. So fit to print was designed by, like I said, Peter McPherson and put out by Flat Out Games. And on the point of it being quick, attest to how many games we played in the last stream. Because we also played That's Not a Hat, designed by Casper Lapp and and published by Ravensburger. And it was yet another game that I really wanted to show, Sidewinder and Warm Boy. They took to it right away, loved it. It's a game of Memory. I guess that's the, is that maybe the, the theme of today's show? It, it is the theme of, of today's show. À la rechange de temps perdu. Just do you so. have a Madeleine for me? I do. Okay. No. No, I don't think you do. So you have basic pictures and you're just trying to remember where they all are. Everyone starts with a card face up and then you take a card from the middle and you pass that card along and then they flip over the card they have and pass that along. And then after a while, you slowly forget where cards are and you start bluffing and it's just a fantastic game and i'm okay with the memory element in that's not a hat because number one it's pretty much the entire game and and number two it's not as though it's some sort of euro style set collection scoring that's grafted strangely on to some kind of memory and if you can't remember trying to bluff your way through strikes me as a more organic connection than set collection and and memory that could just be a, a very very personal preference i don't know but the tension and the bluffing is just so delicious that's not a hat you were kind enough to show us Lunar Rush. This is a review copy we got from the publisher, designed by Stephen Skippy Brown. Skipmeister Skip. I don't think... No, it just says Skippy. Oh. I don't know. I... Let's respect Skippy's desires. Baron Von Skipmeister? <laughs> I don't think he's of the landed nobility. Oh. Published by Dead, Dead Alive Games. Dead Alive Games is the same publisher that put out Omicron Protocol. So this is a very strange sort of segue. I remember seeing the Kickstarter campaign for Lunar Rush and thinking it was a bit of a change. And Lunar Rush is, you somewhat reductively called it a cube pusher, which is accurate. At the end of the day, mostly what you're doing in Lunar Rush to get score points is you're converting cubes into dollars and dollars is... is well, the the online rule book didn't really have a nice explanation, but so I just came up. I'm not sure if this is in the rule book or not, but you are trying to extract resources from the moon, but they are so unstable that you have to mix them with resources from earth. Cause the only thing that would make sense is why you're shipping resources from earth up to the moon and then processing them there only to ship it all back. Well, you again. don't process a whole lot of earth-based resources. Mostly what happens is you ship goods up to improve your infrastructure on the moon. And then your infrastructure on the moon produces these resources that you then ship back to Earth to convert for points. And the shipping is the interesting part of Lunar Rush. For sure. 
because resources from the Earth are free. It's just a function of how many resources a ship can hold. And the more resources a ship can hold, the longer it's going to take for it to complete its journey, either on the way up or on the way down. And the resources that you ship from the moon have to go on a particular ship. Now, the ships aren't purchased or built. They are just drafted after an auction every round. They're like buses. They're going no matter what. (laughs) Good analogy. And as a consequence, you don't really have to worry about building this other kind of infrastructure on the side. It's all about building your infrastructure on the moon. And then there's a very simple worker placement element there, but it's not really a a, a big deal. It's mostly about a limited amount of throughput that you have about resources coming up and resources going out. That part I thought was very, very good. The stock elements, I think, didn't really pan out in an interesting way. So again, the time pressure in theory is you want to get goods back to earth quickly because the goods will operate on a sort of supply-demand mechanism element, whereby as they're sold, their value goes down. But in point of fact, in a you know in the, in our game of Lunar Rush, we were racking up scores in, of several hundred, and so whether I'm selling my five nuggets for eight each or seven each didn't really strike me as so consequential that I would care that much. And since that's one of the driving elements of half of the interesting part of the game, namely the pressure to get goods off um, via certain ships, I was a little disappointed by that element personally. Uh, But there's other goods too, because you're pushing sort of a low cost uh, resource, right? Where, you know, topped out a certain thing. There are some resources that give you 45 per stone that you bring down. So... Thought- yeah, so one of the, so there are four resources, too big, too small, effectively, that you can sell. And three of them I was involved in selling, and I looked at the price tracks. Now, granted, there are different price tracks for different numbers of players, so I'd be interested to see if the economy feels different if we were not playing with three. But I looked at the price tracks, and I was like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Now, I, don't, I don't think they're player-based. They're just sort of scenario-based. Some of them are, like, radically different. Some of them go up and down. They're just like... Oh, really? Yeah, yes, yes. Oh, I stand corrected. Well, then, I'd be very curious to see that. Because the only one that struck me as particularly pli- price fragile was the most valuable resource. It went down rather precipitously in terms of its value, but the other ones, I, I, I just didn't care. I, you know, I made a simple heuristic decision at the top of the game. I mean, eh, it doesn't really matter when any of these get home. And as a consequence, I was almost entirely fixated on volume going back to earth. And there was the speed slash volume trade-off that was very, very pointed about getting stuff to the moon to improve my infrastructure. Again, that part I thought was really interesting. Very rules light given the other games to which Lunar Rush it should be compared, you know, again, uh, economic throughput, yeah, uh, delivery, like a cube pushers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that having been said, the, the, the rule of simplicity was definitely added to by the fact that most people at the table completely ignored some of the optional modules. There are these game unique buildings, effectively, they're called gold modules, and we just completely ignored them. We didn't care. True. It was like the. Doesn't seem to be there's there are enough spare resources for one kind of gro- of of grotesquely hugely scoring thing, not for two. So we're just going to ignore these gold. Yeah, modules. it felt as though the game was going to be so short that they wouldn't pay themselves off. But I'm wondering if that's true or not. There's lots. Oh, of things- it's possible we're just playing very very suboptimally. Yeah. yeah, I'd be willing. As I say, I'm interested in seeing how the economy feels different, either at different player counts or with different scenarios. And it is possible that with more experience, you start 
internalizing the economic conditions in such a way that you would be able to focus on those things. As I say, I'm I'm not a fan of cube pushers. My favorite cube pusher is definitely Citadel Confluence in the sense of, you know, I, I, the standard comment I've been making is I, f- I feel like the last time I was really jazzed about turning one cube into another cube was probably the days of Kalos. Since then, it's 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 not really my bag. But I really did like the trade-offs involved about the, the shipping economy in Lunar Rush and how focused it was. Again, there are so many euros where it's like, okay, well, you got to buy a ship or upgrade your ship or or pay your captain or put out the cruise. And yeah, that can be interesting, but so often it's just more noise for the sake of noise. Lunar, Lunar Rush looks at it and shrugs and says, ah, the interesting trade-off is, is volume versus speed. So just, you know, the ship, as you say, they're going to go regardless to function of who gets them. That's right. I really and the the sort of upgrading of your base is the part I really enjoy too. I just like sort of like that improving worker placement spaces, and it had like each space had a two was you could upgrade it twice. That's the kind of thing I enjoy, and you could even add more modules onto your base to get the really big things, and then plus the three gold ones on top, which we didn't do, but who knows? That is Lunar Rush by Skippy Brown and Dead Alive Games. We also got a GNC back to the table. This is designed by Carl Chuddock. And put out by Asmati Games. Full disclosure, Asmati Games is owned and operated by a personal friend, Chris Cheslick. And I have been at a wedding with Carl Chuddock. I was not marrying him, nor was he marrying me. Uh, but mostly at the table, we discussed So You Think You Can Dance Season 4 with other individuals. Again, I defy anyone to find disclosures as detailed and precise as the one offered here at So Very Wrong About Games. So when in GNC... There are five factions, and these five factions also represent five different kinds of resources. And on your turn, you're just doing sort of hand management. You're looking at your cards, and you're seeing which cards could be more effective. Because in order to play cards, you have to discard cards. And the effect that you get from those cards is more cards. (laughs) So... Like, I need to play Sometimes, this card. Well, I, well, yeah. I have to play this card. I but have the cards it. are multi-use. It's true. Yeah, tons of different ways to use them. But I right. mean, like, it usually goes that I need to play this card. I have to use this card in order to play this card. And it, and the effect that it gives me is to play the other cards out of my hand. Right. So, and you're not always going to get all of the effects on the cards that are used in this way. So you really need to know what all your cards can do to get the most effect out of them because there are big effects on these cards and you're allowed to do a big effect every turn as long as it's the first card you play or it's a quest card that you've kept to the side so and you meet the exact conditions yeah this is this on is the card one of the one of the maybe problems of the game it's like some people are really going to hit these exact conditions more often than everyone else and sometimes players are never going to be able to quite hit those or they've set up to hit those and then throughout the other turns of the game that's all taken away and they start at square one or they just say well i've held on to this card long enough it's just not going to hit and then they move on yeah and you say that they're big effects the the difficulty that i am still having with the gnc after having played now about half a dozen times is i fail to see the point in a lot of the different actions i mean normally by this time even for very complicated tableau builders where the actions are very attenuated, again, an obvious comparison class is Carl Chuddock's innovation, where sometimes you look at a dogma effect and say, why would that be of benefit to me? But the, some of these big moves, as you say, might be putting population all over the, the place or putting a whole bunch of temples all over the place. And sometimes it makes sense that that is an interim goal to something later. But at the end of the day, and normally I love this in games, the scoring is very focused. 
And if you're not doing that, those things to get you points, which you might only need to do about two or three times over the course of, of a game of a GNC, then sometimes it just feels like you're shoving cards around for no particular reason. And it's, it's very baffling. It's true. But, and because trying to figure out why that's a thing, but it's just so efficient. Because normally to get one temple out, it's, you know, a, a, an array of three cards to do that. With these big effects, sometimes you could put five temples out for one card. Right. Actually, that's a lie. It is five temples out for six cards. Right. Because but- everything okay. has to come from your hand. This is one of the many counterintuitive elements of a GNC that trips people up. So, you know, you finally manage to, you think trigger a card that says, well, if it's rainy on a Tuesday, you get to generate three temples in one location and two temples in another location. You're like, aha! And then the sad rules explainer, usually me, I say, well, yeah, but the temples have to come from your hand. They're like, oh. Oh. All right. And then they go do something else. Uh, <laughs> the this, this dissipates. This confusion goes away soon. The confusion that persists for many people, even their third, fourth, fifth play of a G and C, is the relationship between a card's type and its goods preference. Because a card says that it's a die card. Maybe it's not a die card. Most of the time it's kind of like a die card, but it's not really a die card. It's a bronze card. Did I say it was a bronze card? No, really, it's a die card. Except when it's a bronze card for when you need to put it. It's weird. <laughs> or or you play this wood card that generates a wood. So you'd think you just, you know, slide yeah. that. <laughs> Slide that card. Yep. It's a wood card. I'm gonna slide I generate no, a wood. Don't no, do no, that. no, no, no. That card, that card. That wood card, discard. it's not the word card. And then, and then you go over to the wood deck and, and that's the wood card. And that's the one time where stuff comes for free off the deck. Because you've already paid for it elsewhere with something from your hand. So it 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 as I say, it's it's mostly baffling. Uh there are periods of games of innovation, other other kind of uh, tableau builders that are, uh, you know, more dense and complicated. Some of the PAX games, for example. And somebody might point at this effect and say, well, why would I do this thing? And it's not immediately apparent. But again, this kind of confusion tends to go away or diminish over the course of several games. I'm still right there with a GNC. I don't know why. The fundamental flow of a GNC is very, very simple. You generate a, a goods on an island. You sail them back to your home island. You want goods in your home island. That's what you do. Consequently, the two factions that are really good at sailing and goods seem to be the easiest ones to play. So far in games with noobs, they tend to very thoroughly dominate the scoring because that's the simple way to get points. Whereas if you're really good at temples, population, or die, which is a weird thing, like island propagation, broadly speaking. Yeah, there are some obvious benefits of doing that, but it's not directly getting you to the, oh, I've got points on my... So it's bizarre. The other thing that's very strange is that by the the time you finished a game of a GNC, it is possible that the winner has basically done scoring actions maybe once or twice, which is also strange. And sometimes it feels like, again, from the perspective of somebody who has not yet mastered and internalized much of what there is in the GNC, that I was paying attention to my cards and I was waiting for the opportunity to either trigger effect or play the basic actions that would allow me to get goods together. It just never happened. And so I felt, to quote the great sage and eminent scholar Michael Walker, like I was handcuffed by what was going on. Meanwhile, again, those factions that drown in sailing and goods actions are like, oh, you know, thing. So and it's very 
frustrating the last round as well, too, because in lots of games, there's that big last turn. It's like, okay, this is the last turn. No problem. Right. I'm going to cash everything in or do that big combo or, or do in, in a G and C more likely than not, <laughs> you will do nothing. Right. Right. Because the consequential scoring actions are few and far between and hard to pull off. Not hard to pull off in the way that some of the other effects of a GNC are hard to pull off. Like, I've read this card. I need there to be one population and one enemy temple at three different islands to pull off this specific thing. That's one thing. If more of those effects for all the factions were focused on scoring, then I could feel like I was building towards something. Very often in a GNC, I don't feel like I'm building towards anything. I'm just cycling through my cards hoping for something to happen, which... I don't find pleasant. Even at my most confused moments, playing Glory to Rome, PAX games, Innovation, these other weird tableau builders, not that, it, not that a GNC is a tableau builder, it very much isn't. I feel like there are things I can do in the short term to shore up my position for later in a comprehensible way. I don't know if a GNC will feel like that to me after a few more plays or not, but I'm not there yet, and I still find it unsatisfying as a consequence. I find it interesting that it's so much different than other games. Oh, it's very, very different from other games. And so I'm sure. interested in trying it more. But that is a GNC by Carl Chuddick and put out by Asmati Games. Finally, we got to play Lacuna. Lacuna is a review copy we got from the publisher, designed by Mark Garrett's CMYK. And Lacuna is a marvelously tactilely and visually satisfying positional abstract that takes about 30 seconds to explain and then another about 5 to 10 minutes to play. And frankly, uh, despite the fact that it is a genre of game that I typically do not enjoy, I have yet to get remotely tired of Lacuna and I've been playing every chance I get. Walker, what was your impression of Lacuna? I think it's fantastic. Plays super fast. There are many different decisions that you have to make to do this simple placement. You have a bunch of tokens that you're going to be putting in between flowers of the same type in order to collect them, but where it's not just simply putting it between them. There is, because at the end of the game, you're going to be collecting all the flowers that are closest to your pieces. And so there's placing that to get close to a lot of pieces, but there's also a way that you can place it that you'll block the path between two other flowers. Even though they can place it anywhere in there, now they're going to have to place it in a way that's going to be away from the flowers that you're sort of protecting. I liked everything about it. It's got this surprising vibe of almost area control in the sense that you're blocking off various quadrants or sections of the board, even though there is no board. It's like, well, that kind of area is claimed by me. And then some, and then sure enough, Walker finds a way to horn in on that territory and effectively alienate me from the flowers that I was planning on collecting. And now I'm just getting one or two when I thought I was getting five. It's really clever, super approachable marvelously delightful. Lacuna is just endlessly pleasing. That is Lacuna by Mark Garretts, published by CMYK. Now we take a pause to pay the bills. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Mark, we have a 
we have a pledge of indifference where we talk about crowdfunding stuff. And sometimes I forget that some of them should be mentioned here because they're just that interesting. There's a game that is finished, unfortunately, on, on Kickstarter, but they are taking late pledges. Lucky for me. Uh, it is called Snow Planner. It is a dice worker placement game, which everyone knows that I love. It's like Batuku. Uh, this is designed by Akashi. And it is, you are running sort of a ski resort and it's very, the visual, the visual design is very interesting, very mellow. I think it's going to be a very fun game to play. Looking forward to giving it a try. So check it out. Snow Planner. Also, Rats of Wistar. Uh, What? Rats of Wistar. W-I-S-T-A-R. Rats of Wistar. Are we talking about the animals? Are we talking about snitches? What, what, what's Animals. That? Actual rats. Is, is this? Oh, is this more anthropomorphic animals? Uh, no. Literal rats. Literal rats escaping from, from a house. Maybe from a scientific type house. Scientific type house. Like a, an animal testing a lab. facility. Rats escaping from a lab. May, I, I, I haven't read a ton about it. Okay. I see... Simone Luciani and and I ah uh, okay I just, sorry never mind I just start drooling why why did you lead with the rats then yeah I don't Simone know. Luciani should have been the, the the headline and this is also being co-designed with Daniello Saba and the sort of whole art effect is very interesting it's sort of cartoony and sort of you know looks great looking forward to it so they didn't decide to go with photorealistic rats correct <laughs> it's also being put out by Cranial Creations we like Barrage. People like Barrage. Yes. I'm and they a have huge... a great track record of Kickstarters. So... Yeah. I like what they, I like the designs they commission. I don't really like the publisher, which is unfortunate. But Simone Luciani appears to be working with them continuously. So I guess we're stuck. Such is the way of things. Lastly, for me, David Thompson is sort of dabbing his fingers into something completely different. Uh, going in a different direction, I guess, this time. He's doing a World War II game. <laughs> and it's going to have so... It's going to be solo? Like, I don't know. He's not done anything like this before. <laughs> so I'm very interested. He's also... It's, it's Sorry, it's it's co-designed with Niles Johansson. It is called Battle Card. So you can download a game for this right now. Uh, Market Garden. It's, it's sort of like a solo dice type game. I'm looking forward to trying it. It's going to be coming out. Take a look at it. David Thompson, Battle Card. There is a long-standing tradition in the wargaming sphere of simple engagement wargames on postcard-sized maps with chits that you just cut out from the insert of a magazine. And this appears to be a sort of contemporary riff on that idea in the slightly more David Thompson heavily, heavily approachable rule set when compared to most traditional historical war games, but nonetheless in the historical war game idiom. I, for one, am very keen to take a look, especially since the burden on the print and player is so negligible that even in my diminished straits and my travel-riddled psyche, I am going to be in a position to put put it through its paces in the coming days. Well, the problem with this, Mark, I think, like, no one has D6s lying around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's relying to, on these. Now they're going to have to order. Dice. It's relying on these exotic yeah. chance cubes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, finally, for me, this is a bit of an apology to our commissioners and overlords, and I just want to be perfectly transparent. This is something I, um, I could have included in an episode of Bloat, but I decided to just give everyone a peek behind the curtain of the editorial processes here at Swag. We often open up what game we're going to review next to our commissioners and overlords, and they selected with a certain degree of. 
consensus that we have to review a GNC, but I ought not to have offered that as an option. I quickly realized that upon reflecting my thoughts in the game, and that is because it is published by a friend of mine, and therefore I'm willing to talk about it in certain contexts, but making it the feature game is not a bridge I'm willing to cross, and so I just want to issue a full mea culpa to everyone who really wanted a full review of a GNC. I ought not to have dangled that in front of your face. It's entirely my fault. I apologize, and going forward, I'm going to be more careful about these things at the outset. That's the news, and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game of the week, which is Race to the Raft. Race to the Raft is a review copy we got from the publisher The City of Games. It was designed by Frank West. Frank West is best known for his game The Isle of Cats, which was a tile-laying game published in 2019, also by The City of Games, in which you place polyomino cats on various boats, and they go to the Isle of Cats. Bad news, things didn't turn out too well. More on that in a moment. He is also known for his 2018 design for the City of Games, The City of Kings, which we've already reviewed on this podcast, which was a fascinating sort of pick-up-and-deliver fantasy-adventure hybrid. And I hate to break it to you, Walker, but it's not a good day for the cats. Is it? I thought you keep saying bad things. It's a barbecue, right? Like a vegetarian no. barbecue for the cats? They're going to have this like, weird felis cactus they're barbecuing up. Is, is that not what's happening? Cats haven't mastered fire yet, Walker. Oh. There, there's been no feline Prometheus. Uh-oh. Although that could be the sort of CGI animated anthropomorphic animal sequel to Oppenheimer. Okay. Everything is anthropomorphic animals now. It is. So in Race for the Raft, the poor island is now on fire. The poor island. <laughs> <laughs> These evil cats have, have have banded together to burn down the evil island. Unfortunately, the fire's got away well, on them. I don't know. I don't, let's just go with it. It's, the it's, cats are evil and this, the island's this, evil. This sounds way more interesting than what they have. <laughs> All right. So now they have to run back, I guess, to a makeshift boat that they've made. Not the great ship that they came on, just yeah. this raft that's sitting out in the, in the ocean. And they all have to race back. And we have to sort of program in routes in order for them to get back. There are different colored cats. There are a lot less. There's only five cats now of different colors. And we they all have their own routes that they need to get back to the ships. And every time you put down a route, you have to add more fire with the polyomino pieces. So they sort of flipped. They used to be nice cats. Now it's evil fire. Wait, cats are nice. and They were nice in the first game. Now they're evil. Got it. I have to say that when I initially saw the theme for Race to the Raft, I was honestly a tiny little bit horrified. Not in the moral way, but just in an aesthetic way. Like, so so why would you... What? Because if you Smokey lo- the Bear does not approve of these cats. Right, because if you lose the game, literally what that represents is a cat being surrounded by fire. That is how you lose. It's true. And you don't go to the grim, obvious conclusion of that. But we're talking about an entertainment marker, uh, market where you can do whatever you want to people, <laughs> but you certainly can't show an animal being harmed on screen. <laughs> you definitely get it. So I was a little shocked. But then I thought, this is actually quite perfect. In the first game, you represented a considerable effort to board and then presumably eventually offload all these cats to this, this, this island paradise. An island just for the cats. The Isle of Cats. 
And now the cats have messed it up somehow. I don't know what happened. Presumably there was a candle on a table and some cat was like, nah, I'm going to knock that off. And now the cats need to get off of this burning island, but they're not going to go just anywhere. You can be like, look, there's a, there's a, there's a straight shot. There's clear, a clear path between you and the boat. It's like, mm, I only want to walk, walk along orchards. Yeah. That's desert. Yeah. I don't want to walk around a meadow or a desert. I only want to walk around orchards. Very- I'm going to sit here and lick myself until you give me my orchards. So I think actually this might be the most cat simulationist as, as game in history. Very, very catty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so getting back to the actual game of Race to the Rat. It is a co-op tiling game where the tiles are cards. They're these three by three cards. And as Walker says, you have to give the cats a path from where they are to the comparatively janky rafts to get them off. And and you don't have to do that path all in one go. You could, although we, a lot of the time made it all in one go, but you could step them down because obviously paths are eventually going to have to cross. So you could get the red cat sort of halfway there in order for you to let the purple cat go through stuff like that. Yeah. the, The key pressure is, Every time you lay a card, every time you terraform the board, because the board starts off as this kaleidoscopic dayglow uh, technicolor mess that the cats will refuse to traverse. And so what you need is a solid line of the same color from point A to point B. The trick is, every time you lay down a card, you have to put down a fire tile. There are, and I'm going to emphasize more of this later, there are 50 plus scenarios of Race to the Raft. And even in the easy ones... The ones that are rated is easy, and the ones you see the board set up, and you figure, oh, that, that, that won't be too difficult. The moment you have to start putting down fire, there is no good place to put down the fire. <laughs> there, You identify areas where it is less terrible to put the fire, and even those areas fill up real fast. And that's one of the reasons why, and we've done it, you're right, we, we, we don't tend to do it too often, but we've done it, even on the easier scenarios, to move a cat halfway to the raft, because then, presumably, all the places that the cat left, you can then burn. Yeah, back feed in the fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they've done a great job of making these uh, fire tiles super obnoxious. They're not quadrominoes. They're not tetrominoes. They're these varying sizes and shapes. One of them is a burning cross. Mm, Little oogie. But anyway, they tend to be big and ungainly, and they don't really fit super well together. And anytime you get them to fit reasonably well together, it feels like a minor triumph. It's obnoxious in just the right way. The amount of pressure and tension that you get from every move is really well done, I think, in Race of the Raft. Yeah, and I really love how they introduce all sorts of different rules. Like like you said, there's 50 different scenarios. There's sort of like an introduction for every new rule, sort of show you, you know, handhold you through the how it works. There's like scenarios where you have to keep cats close together. There's scenarios where one cat has to go up and sort of rescue. The green cat has to rescue the other green cat, and then now they can both move out. Stuff like that. There's also, on top of the five different paths that you have, there's also a chalk path on some of these tiles. So one cat needs to actually follow a line that goes through all these different colors. It's yeah. Very interesting. And It's wild. And my, my chief suggestion to anyone playing Race the Raft is... If you find the introductory scenarios to be relatively straightforward, just start skipping. The rule book is like, we strongly recommend you play an entirety of a tutorial. No, 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 no. There's a whole bunch of scenarios. Play whichever ones you want. Play them in any order. Play one that's too hard for you and figure out you got to go easier. 
do whatever you like. Don't feel married to the idea of like, well, we're going to play with the same rules three in a row. Skip to the full rules if you want to. There are, the other scenarios, frankly, are more interesting to be frank, the ones where you really start feeling more of the pressure, where you really don't know which cat to move first, you don't feels like you have more of a, of a sandbox uh, situation. So how the game works is there's a very big sort of communication rule, because if everyone could just talk openly, I think the game would break and it would be a little too easy. Uh, break is a strong word. I, th- I think this is concerns about quarterbacking. True. But I mean, like you could game it out in such a way that it would be much easier to win. Possibly. So there's no turn order. You just start, you can sort of say things like, I, my card, my card works pretty good. You have open talking before you draw any cards and then everyone draws three cards. And and then you're allowed to engage in, and this is the part where the communication rules, they work fine in practice, but if you're interested in pushing them, they wouldn't withstand solid scrutiny, which is, well, you can comment on the relative virtue of various cards, but don't say how many squares there are. Of red. So you can say... Typical Gloomhaven mission cards. No, exactly. Uh, Well, actually, I think of it as Shadows Over Camelot rules restrictions, right? You know, you have cards that go through one through five, and you're like, this is a good card. Is it a very good card? No. It's just good. It's like, okay, they've got a four. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you, if you were interested in abusing the rules as written, it would be easy to do. We've never felt the inclination to do that. This isn't even a serious criticism of, of Race to the Raft, even. It's just every time I, I see those, the same set of, yeah, you can describe it, just don't be too precise. I'm like, oh, fine, whatever. And so there are also tokens that you hand out, depending on how many players there are. One is a human token. They're allowed to like use that token to actually talk normally and openly about a certain idea. Or yeah, so once you're in the game, you can break that rule, yeah. Yeah, and then the other players are given a cat, and they get to meow, 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 meow. Right. Meow. They, they also uh, can use the token. They can also cash in the token to knock something off the table or urinate wherever they want. Uh, no. Is that not what it says in the rulebook? It does not. Oh. Yikes. I have some apologies to issue. <laughs> there are other tokens in the game as well. There are water tokens. And you can use these water tokens to remove some of the fire polyomino pieces. Which if you're a coward. Did. Exactly. No, no. We, we've done it before. We, if you're suboptimal. Well, yeah. Again, that's where uh, Race of the Raft is not quite as definitive as you won the game, you lost the game. Because... I have a solid preference in co-op and solo games of having victory conditions, not, well, here's the score you got. This is a vague description of how well we think you did. Now, this isn't because I'm, I think anyway, this isn't because I'm super competitive. It's just because I like the structure of having a definitive end and having the nice little binary of you succeed in the scenario. You didn't succeed in the scenario. So for example, Uwe Rosenberg's solo games, I find tend to be unsatisfying to me because they're just score attacks. Similarly, I prefer just one to So Clover in part because there is more structure in the scoring elements of just one to So Clover. And I prefer the scoring of code names to just one. So that's I, what I'm saying. I'm, and it sort of a plays into the strength of green team wins is the fact that we play so many party games where there's a scoring element yep. and we couldn't care less but <laughs> in green team wins right and yep. I, I, we adhere to it and it's not as though we feel as though it's you know what i mean i don't think we've ever thought about it it's just of course you score because yes. because you're on the green team and green team scores absolutely yeah. so circling back to race of the raft 
you get a higher score if you complete the scenario without having used any of the water tokens. And because uh, in many scenarios, if you're willing to use all three water tokens, the game becomes almost trivial. And again, that, that I think is a, re- a reflection of the fact that I regret not shoving to the harder scenarios right away. But so let's talk. There's a, there's a mechanic about your hand size. Like I said, you draw three cards at the beginning of the round, and then you're playing these cards to either a, improve the roots for the cats or B you discard a card to move the cats and everyone must play all of their cards to end yes. the round. That so, pressure is fascinating. Yeah. Very interesting. And when you move the cat, they become exhausted, right? So if you move them all the way to the raft, no problem. But if you're only moving them halfway, they're now exhausted for that round. And if you want to move them a second time that round, you have to pay two cards. Mark, there's an advanced rule that, you when you move a cat, you get to only move them five squares when you discard a card. Yikes. Um, so anyway, when you discard a card to move a cat, they sort of form a pile. And when a pile gets to a certain size, and you start drawing these calamity cards, which pretty well is a is a penalty, and you get to add more fire. Yes. Sooner or later it's all gonna redound to fire. All fire all the time. It's it's all fire all the time. And again, so there's there's always pressure. You find yourself in a position where, well, maybe we do have to move that exhausted cat again. You look around the table and nobody has enough cards to do it. Oh, well. You look around the table and you're pretty much done for the round. You want the car, the cats to unexhaust, but people still have a whole bunch of cards left and nothing good to do with them. And so you start wondering about how you're going to stop the bleeding that way. I do think that there are lots of interesting little trade-offs with respect to the the, the card play in Race to the Raft. And I do appreciate the fact that the decks give you an indication about the relative distribution of various terrain types. You know, if you desperately need to move the red cat or get the red cat, the, the red cat's precious little meadows, so it can get its precious little paws and its little beans to safety because it can't be bothered to help itself or, heaven forfend, walk through the type of terrain that it doesn't like nearly as much. Well, then you pull from one of the decks with more red on the back. But this isn't a guarantee. So you end up in a position where you're looking at your cards, trying to figure out the geometry of how best to play them, figuring out the, which cards you'd be happy to burn, no pun intended, etc. That part, really well done. Also, where, like you said, not only do you have to sort of place the fire so it's like all stored up in one area, you need to keep a path open, like a three-by-three three grid, so it gives you room to play these cards later and, and manipulate them away to get them to the raft. Yes, as I've already commented a number of times, uh, spatial puzzles are not my forte. And during a lot of our early games, I ended up placing fire in a way that, that I thought was fine. Oh, there's plenty of room. Yeah, there was plenty of room for a cat to get through, but there wasn't any room to play a card where we needed to play a card. Uh, that may have contributed to the instances where we actually used the water tokens to get rid of fire tiles. I'll, I'll claim responsibility for that. Uh, but <laughs> such is the way of things. It's not overly tricky, right? You're not going to build yourself into a corner. And I think that's one of the reasons why the water tiles exist. You don't build yourself into a corner and realize halfway, a third of the way through a scenario that you've lost. Not that a given scenario is particularly long in the first place. It is nonetheless the case, that despite the fact that it is a very approachable game, that people do feel an internalized kind of pressure. At least in our group, right? Somebody's got a fire tile in their hand, you know, and they, they, they don't want to make the group lose. And they're looking at the board and saying, where should I put it? We're like, we can't tell you. And I'm like, uh... And then they put it there and it's like, well, that's the last place you should have put it! <laughs> <laughs> Of all the places. Yeah, of all the... Yeah. So, I could easily see uh, groups, especially uh, uh, who want it to be a more family weight game, 
uh, House ruling race to the raft and allowing slightly more communication than is, is strictly speaking recommended. Because again, how much quarterbacking you're worried about, how much alpha gaming you're worried about, that's very much a group question rather than I think a game question. And I, I, I do think that race for the race to the raft in the rules as published is very strongly in the trying to make sure there's none, even at the expense of, of some people possibly internalizing pressure. And lastly, for me, I just think it's stupid that you can't cut some of the cards. Like, you don't want that <laughs> row. And the fact that some of the cards aren't transparent in parts is also dumb. <laughs> so we've actually been comparing Race to the Raft to Dorf Romantic, the board game, because they're both co- purely cooperative tile-laying games. And I really think, though, that despite the fact that they are both lightweight approachable rule sets that have sort of the same structural elements, the play experience of the two games are actually very, very, very far apart. Dorf Romantic is a score attack. It doesn't really matter how many points you score. You're probably going to make some progress somewhere in the the sort of pseudo campaign structure, tick something off. You never really feel as though a single placement will cause you to lose because that's impossible. It's incoherent to even talk about it in those terms. And then there's Race of the Raft. Yeah, you're not going to place a tile to incinerate a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so I've never... Sometimes in Dorf Romantic, you know, you pull the tile and someone's like, well, I don't know. Should I put it over here or something? It's nowhere near the same sense of internalized burden that one gets. Part of that is exactly right. It's the theme. Part of that is also the communication restrictions. And so it it really is key to how some of those ancillary-looking rules really craft the experience. So Race to the Raft ends up feeling vastly more puzzly, vastly more tense, although not in an unpleasant way, I don't think. Uh, and the stakes feel a lot higher. And as a result of the fact that you have a whole bunch of, you know, nominally win-loss scenarios, it really does end up feeling light years from Dorf Romantic. I like both, to be clear. I will happily play both Dorf Romantic, uh, the, the, the board game, as well as Race to the Raft. But Race to the Raft end up ends up feeling like the game with far more teeth. Agreed. For good or ill. It feels like there's a lot more to it as well. There's, I can see a bigger future in Race to the Raft than I do in... Dwarf Romantic. Well, Dwarf Romantic, we haven't unlocked everything. We're not in a position to know. As opposed to to the Race to the the Raft, where it was very upfront. It's like, these are the rules that you add at these scenarios. These are the rules you add at these scenarios. And so that campaign structure was far more transparent in terms of picking what you want. Uh, I will say, though, that unlike the early scenarios of Race to the Raft, the earlier scenarios of Dwarf Romantic, I did find more satisfying in that sense. I, again, I strongly encourage, if you find the early intro scenario too easy, just jump ahead until you think it looks interesting. Feel free to lose. Feel free to have some cats not make it off the island. Go ahead. Live your live your best life. You'll find a lot of good scenarios that hit that middle, middle point, I think. Uh... Again, I'm not a huge fan of spatial puzzles, but the tiling elements feel a lot more like a slightly more traditional tiling euro, and I appreciate those those elements of, of added tension and the you know the burden of placing the fire. Race to the Raft, I think, is very very successful at generating a good cooperative experience with a with a light rule set and a surprisingly grim theme. Agreed. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggamescom slash contact. If you want to find out more about our editorial policies, our various shows, various other bits of nonsense that we sometimes utter, you can find it all 
at SoWrongGames.com. Thank you very much for deciding to spend time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>